Today's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. We are, there we are. We are continuing this morning in our series in First Peter called Where is Your Hope? And as Isaiah just read, we are into chapter 4. And in chapter 4, uh, starting out right away, there are some difficult verses. There appears to be there appears to be this statement about ceasing from sin, and there is also the statement about preaching to those who are dead. And so it would appear that there's a lot to cover this morning, but actually it is simple and straightforward. And the Lord is telling us something that we can all hold on to this morning. So I don't want you to be scared or confused by these verses because I hope uh, that you'll see that they in fact make a lot of sense and they make a lot of practical sense, which is good because we need practical. When we hear worship music like we've heard this morning, when we see parents coming up dedicating their kids like we saw this morning, Hopefully that's bringing you joy. Hopefully that's making you feel like the Lord is doing something, not only in this place, but period, in the world. And you might think, I want to be a part of that. That's motivating to me. How? If you were here last week, you heard uh, Brooks talk about how we are supposed to, and he's going back through now First Peter in a number of different places, submit to authorities, employers, spouses, each other. We're supposed to submit to one another. And we talked about being ready to give a reason for our hope if we have hope in Jesus, and being patient while suffering for doing good, and treating our enemies with gentleness and respect. And often, often our first and biggest question in response to those kinds of messages when we hear those words in scripture is to say, how, Lord? How is that supposed to work? And Brooks rightly ended his sermon by saying, it doesn't work without Jesus. And it doesn't work without the Holy Spirit in us. So that is the answer. But God is good and he is gracious and he does not just say to us, the answer is me, figure it out. He says, the answer is me and now here is my word. And here is what that looks like on a daily basis. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk specifically about how in 1 Peter 4, Peter says, there is a connection between what you do and what you think. There's a connection that cannot be ignored. There's a connection that Jesus himself is aware of and he is modeling for us how that connection is supposed to work, what we're supposed to do with that knowledge that our mind, our thoughts, and our actions are inextricably connected, that we can't disentangle them, and for good reason. And also Peter is going to say, but don't be deceived. There is going to be a temptation to separate your thoughts and your actions. The world is going to try and convince you that you don't have to think and act in a way that coincides. They're going to try and convince you that you can do whatever you want and say whatever you want and the world will just be fine with that. 
And as you might expect, he's going to say, your choice is going to be to follow Christ's example. Because he has been saying that all throughout 1 Peter. He's been saying, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. And he's going to say the same thing again today in chapter 4. And then finally, he's going to give us this thought, this chance, which he's already said in 1 Peter 3. He's going to repeat it in 1 Peter 4. Hey, we have a chance to talk to God. God, the one who made the universe. God, the one who is in control of all things. God, the one who decides when we live and when we die and how we live and how we die. That same God, we can talk to him. And so Peter's going to call us to choose that, to choose the chance to talk to God. So that's where we're headed this morning. Uh, If you would, pray with me as we begin to dig into the word. Lord Jesus, it is so good to know that we have victory in you. It is so good to know that we can have joy in your house. It is so good, Lord Jesus, to know that you live and that we have a Savior that has defeated every enemy, including death. And we praise you for that. And Lord, as we hold on to that, we need to know how do we walk with you? How do we, how do we live this life that you're calling us to? So I pray that you would give us that wisdom today from your word. Lord, don't Don't let anyone remember anything I've said, but let them know who you are and what you are saying through your word this morning. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. 1 Peter 4, 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter does not say in 1 Peter 4, Hey, everybody, there is a connection between your thoughts and your actions. What he says is, Christ acted this way. Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves, prepare yourselves, therefore, with the same way of thinking. Suffering in the flesh is an action. It's a choice. It's a behavior. It's what Jesus did with his body when he walked the earth. He suffered in the flesh. He submitted his body to suffering. And that is a way of thinking. That is a type of thinking that Peter wants to call our attention to, to raise to our attention. He says, there is a way of thinking, and because it's Jesus' way of thinking, it's right thinking. That's why the title of this sermon is Right Thinking, because this is how Jesus thinks. He thinks that if we are going to suffer in the flesh, that that is powerful, that's valuable. This is what he does. This is how he thinks, this is how he acts. It says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We have to take that whole sentence there. We can't stop with verse 2. Because if you just read verse 2, it's a real problem. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I'm sorry, verse 1. If we just stop there at the beginning of verse 2, it's a problem. It's not that you just suffer in the flesh and you stop sinning. End of story. Your life is good. Have fun. Right? That's not what Peter is saying. He's saying that there is a way of thinking that goes along with physical suffering. When you submit your body to Jesus, when you say, I am willing for you to be Lord of my life, to direct my steps, to do whatever you want with my life, that there is a consequence of that, which is a way of thinking that's connected. And this is how we are supposed to think. Not doing what the Gentiles want to do, which is whatever they want, right? And there's this whole list here. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. This is what people who do not know Jesus want to do. And of course, this is not all that they want to do. But Peter's trying to draw a contrast. He's trying to say, look, you can live for pleasure. You can just do what 
feels good and sounds good, or you can think the way that Christ thinks and you can act the way that Christ acts. It says there's a connection. Here is this connection. When you do this, what happens is you're choosing to live for the will of God, not for human passions. And so it isn't that you just stop sinning outright because we know that everybody continues to sin even after they've accepted Christ. But you don't have to continue to choose sin. This is the difference. If you've accepted Jesus, you can arm yourself with this way of thinking that by submitting your body to him, you can allow him to sanctify you. You can allow him to change you, clean you, grow you and build you up into his Holy Spirit, into his body. And therefore, you can stop sinning in the ways that you've sinned in the past. So this is what Jesus is demonstrating for us. And this is what Peter wants to call our attention to. That when we give our lives to him, that our thoughts are changed and eventually it works backward into our actions that we want to do different things. And so it isn't that we just stop sinning altogether, but rather that we choose to, we choose to live for God's will instead of what we had chosen in the past ourselves. Our thoughts impact our actions. You all know this. Everybody is aware of this, but Peter really wants us to pay attention to this, that what we do also impacts how we think, that our routine behaviors are going to be important. So this is something that Brooks has talked about in the past that you have perhaps heard described as spiritual discipline. Not discipline punishment, but discipline order. Discipline regularity, discipline training. Right? That's what we're talking about here. Actions that impact how we think. If, if we train our bodies to follow the path of the world, our mind is going to think the world's thoughts. If we take all of those uh, invitations to temptation and our body is given over to those things that just feel good, it's going to impact our thoughts. Likewise, if we make space to do the things that God is calling us to do, loving our neighbor, uh, giving up of ourself, giving what we have to serve others, that's going to impact the way we think also. So, what we do and what we think. It's indivisible, but the world is going to argue otherwise. And we'll get to that in a second. That's the temptation. The truth is that when we give our bodies and lives to Christ, we are arming ourselves with his way of thinking. And that's what Peter is trying to draw our attention to right here at the beginning of chapter four. That you, if you want to live as Christ lived, you have to do something different. You have to act in a way that's different. Not in order to earn salvation, Right? That is not the point. This is not, look at the Bible, find all of the things to do so that you can please God. No, he's saying you have already been chosen by God. And we'll get to that in a second too. That Jesus Christ loved us while we were dead. He chose us, he saved us while we were dead in our sin. So this is not about pleasing him in order to earn salvation. This is about arming ourselves with Christ's way of thinking by doing the same things that Jesus did. Jesus who is God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave himself up, took the nature of a servant. That's what he's calling us to. That's the right way of thinking. But here's the temptation. Here's what we're called by the world to consider, that we can do what we want to do. First Peter 4.3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles here does not specifically mean ethnic Gentiles, right? It does definitely mean people who have not chosen to follow Christ. So people who have chosen not to follow Christ live in sensuality and passions and so on. But, but 
they also go a step further. They don't just live that way. They expect you to live that way. It says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. You ever had this happen? You ever had somebody look at your life and look at your behaviors and say, you're so foolish. Why do you do those things? And they're talking about the way that you follow God. Has that ever happened? For some of you, it has. But for some of you, it hasn't because you're not following God in a way that's evident. Nobody looks at your life and sees you as a Christ follower. And so they don't malign you because you look just like them. But Peter is saying, if you look like Christ, they will. They will make fun of you because your life will look different. For those of you who are following Christ, for those of you who want to follow Christ, try to follow Christ, does the temptation come to you like this? Do you ever get an, uh, an invitation, please join us for our flood of debauchery this Saturday? Does that ever happen? Like it's Friday afternoon, right? You guys are hanging out at work, watching the clock. It's almost time to check out. And somebody says, hey, we're having a flood of debauchery this weekend. We'd like you to come. That's not how temptation comes, right? Not, not usually. Sometimes it does. Teenage boys are about that subtle. <laughs> but generally, it doesn't come that way. How does the temptation, how does the chem- temptation to divorce our thinking and our actions come? The world's going to say these sorts of things to you. It's going to say, think and believe what you want because each person can have their own truth. That's how the temptation to separate your thoughts and your actions is going to come. Or it's going to come this way. Do whatever you want as long as everybody involved agrees. Magic word today is consent. As long as everybody consents, it's fine. The world will even say that hypocrisy isn't a problem so long as your duplicity is popular. Right? It's not a problem. It's not a problem if you're a family values political candidate and you have multiple, uh, multiple adulteries in your past. That's not a problem because that's a popular duplicity. We, we like that one. It's okay. How about one for the church? It's not a problem if you say you're a Christian and you only come sometimes to church and you only come to church as evidence of your faith. That's pretty popular, actually, as a duplicity. So the world is going to say those things. Not, not come to our orgy, right? Those aren't the sorts of invitations we get. But we do get lots of these. We get lots of invitations to divorce our thoughts and our actions and to separate them out and say that we can think whatever we want and do whatever we want and it doesn't matter. They don't have to coincide. They don't have to line up. These lies are adding up to a temptation to reject that connection between right thinking and right action. And Peter is very explicit. He says, you can't do that. You can't do that. You have to arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking, which was to suffer, which was to give his body up for us. So that's the temptation. If, if we just do that, if we just give in to that temptation, Peter says, here's the consequence. Non-believers and people who say that they have believed but in fact don't will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Just take verse 5 for a second. Everyone will have to give account to God. If you live that way, if you live as though your thoughts and your actions can be separated, that you can say, I believe in Jesus and nothing in your life corresponds to that. Understand that you have to give an account to Jesus at the end of your life. Peter wants you to be clear 
there is a judge. He is ready to judge. And he is paying attention. And I know that that is not the sort of thing we want to hear, but that's the truth. But the good news of the gospel is in the very next verse. Steve said this morning, and he rightly said, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You do not have to fear the judge if you have been found in Christ. And here's why. Because the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This verse seems to say that somebody somewhere is going and preaching to graves, or they're somehow preaching to people who have already died. And I don't think that in the context you can read this verse this way. But what you can see is what is consistent throughout Scripture that people who have not chosen God are as good as dead. I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 here. I want to read to you the way that Paul describes this in Ephesians. So if you want to turn with me, go ahead. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 are going to be familiar words to you. This is the good news of the gospel. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, or as Peter says, doing what the Gentiles want to do. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the connection here? You are not supposed to do good things so that you will be saved. No, you were dead. The gospel was preached to you while you were dead so that you could do good works, because God has created them in advance for you to do, so that other people will be drawn to him. You say, well, isn't that just splitting hairs? No. No, that's not in, uh, an unnecessary or an unmeaningful distinction. It is the most important distinction. There is nothing that you can do, nothing that you can do to save your soul. Jesus is the one who saves us. And yet there is everything that you can do by Christ's power to bring other people to him. He wants to use you in that. That's what good works means. It's not good works in the eyes of men, right? The good works that we do for Jesus look like foolishness to the world. So it's not building ourselves kingdoms or palaces or great glory on this earth. That's not what good works means. It means doing what God has called you to do. And he wants to use that to save other people. So that is what we're talking about here. That's what right thinking is. This is the, these are the stakes, right? We are dead or we're alive. Christ dies to save our souls, but then he makes us new. So are you dead or are you alive? Do you want to live for righteousness? This is... The choice that we have. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, we can arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
Peter has this knowledge, this understanding or awareness, if you will, that his time is short. He has a very specific understanding, more specific than we do. God, in fact, tells him when his days are coming to a close. We don't always get that sort of message from God. We just generally know that we're alive and we're mortal and we're going to die. But Peter has some more specifics. And Peter understands that he can use his time one of two ways. He can arm himself with the world's way of thinking and choose to do what the Gentiles want to do, which is whatever feels good, whatever sounds good in the moment, right? Whether there's an invitation to the next flood of debauchery or not, they're just going to choose to do whatever feels good to them. Or, or he can choose to do the will of God, to live for the will of God. This is Jesus' example. He takes on the nature of a servant. He seeks and saves the lost. He lays down his life for his friends. I said at the beginning that we needed practical, we needed uh, understandable means by which we can do these things that God is calling us to do, like love our enemy. That's hard. How do we love our enemy? We seek and save the lost. We have to treat our enemy as though they are lost, they are dead in their sin, and they can be saved by Jesus. That's who our enemy is. Might they also be trying to kill us? Yeah. Were they also trying to kill Peter? Absolutely. They threw him in prison. They beat him. They very clearly wanted him dead. In a number of cases, it was obvious to Peter that he was wanted dead. And yet he sought to save, just as Jesus sought to save. That's the example we can choose to follow. So that's what right thinking means. It means acting in a way that's consistent with the thoughts that Jesus had and the actions that Jesus acted in front of us, that he gave us as an example. And that right thinking, choosing to follow Jesus, it offers us this chance. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled and sober-minded are very close. They're very similar. Okay? If there's any distinction between them, maybe it's this. That self-control we know is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is something that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us that enables us to choose our actions, to be careful in how we act. Sober-minded carries the additional maybe implication of not allowing your body and your emotions to distort your thinking. Which isn't to say that your emotions should be disregarded or that you should try and suppress your emotions. That's not what I'm saying. But you have to recognize the role that your emotions play in your thoughts. That sometimes your thoughts are not clear or accurate. And likewise, sober-mindedness right, involves things we might do to our body to prevent us from thinking well. For some of you, that's a temptation to use alcohol or other drugs to keep yourself from feeling and thinking. And so Peter is saying right now, don't do those things, not because alcohol is inherently evil, but because you have the chance to talk to God and your mind needs to be clear. And before you write yourself out of this equation, you say, well, I'm not an alcoholic. That's wonderful. But I know you, I know me. We make ourselves unavailable to God in the mind in lots of ways, right? We, we, we have all kinds of problems with sleeping well and eating well and doing all kinds of other things that put our mind out of commission. So don't just say, well, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm good. You could be an addict to any number of things and therefore not sober-minded. Be sober-minded so that you can talk to God. Arm yourself with right thinking so that you can talk to God. Why do we want to talk to God anyway? 
Let's remind ourselves why we want to talk to God. I'm going to go to Isaiah 56 here. If you have a Bible, turn there. If not, just listen. Isaiah 56 is a good reminder of why we want to talk to God. Verses 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner, that's all of us by the way, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. We want to talk to God because he invites all of us in. Every single one of us. When we are dead in our sins, when we're foreigners to him, when we're people who have no standing in the world, the the, term eunuch here is used as a stand-in for people who cannot produce heirs, right? People who cannot show their worth in the world system. And God is saying, look, I'm going to give you a reward far beyond what the world system can give you. So that's why you should want to talk to me because I want to save you. I want to bring you in. We should want to talk to him and we should want to have a clear and clean heart when we talk to him. This is uh, Psalm 51. I'm going to read a a few verses of which many of you are familiar with. David crying out to God, asking for a clean heart. 51 verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then it goes on, into verse 13, and it says, I'm sorry, it says, Then I will teach your transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. And he goes on in Psalm 51 to say that it's not animal sacrifices that God requires, but it's a heart. And this is why we need to have our heart right with God so that we can talk with him. I said we should want to talk to him because he's going to welcome all of us in. But in order to talk to him, as I've already said, we need to have a right heart before him. So Psalm 51, David is praying for forgiveness. He has abandoned God and chosen another woman as his hope in that moment, right, of temptation. He says, I will take adultery over my dedication to the Lord. And then he cries out in forgiveness. But in 1 Peter 3, 7 and 4, 7, it's not nearly that significant, it would appear, right? In 1 Peter 3, 7, uh, Peter is saying to husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way. And he says, listen, how you live with your wife, that is for the sake of your prayers. And if that seems less than uh, committing adultery, it's, it's still significant. But 
Even more so, 1 Peter 4, 7, which just says, be sober-minded, be self-controlled. Necessarily, uh, in that statement, there's no sin. Necessarily, right? It doesn't mean that you have sinned, you've, you've chosen wrong, but rather that just by not having a sober mind, just by not being self-controlled, you're going to interrupt your thoughts with God, your prayers with God. So when we have good communication with God, we can think and act as we should, and this is what ultimately this chance adds up to, is the opportunity to live as Jesus lived. Remember, Peter started this whole section with, arm yourself, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, Christ suffering in the flesh, because he knows that this is what's good for us. He knows that this is what will help us practically live out our faith. So if we're in good communication with God, we can think and act as we should. This is another reason why we should choose the chance to talk to God. I'm going to turn one more time to Ephesians. I'm going to read from Ephesians 5. Again, a passage that is familiar to many of you, starting in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's his suffering. Peter says, arm yourself with this way of thinking. See how Jesus suffered in the flesh. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, or is covetous that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It goes on, I'm going to skip down here to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We should choose the chance to talk to God because the consequence of sin is death. Because without Christ, we are dead. We should choose the chance to talk to God because He wants to gather us in. He wants to take all of us who are foreigners to him by birth, all of us who may feel like we have nothing to contribute to this world, <clears throat> all of us who are at odds with him. He wants to take all of us in. And he says, here's how you can do it. Follow my example. So how do we submit to authorities? How do we love our enemies? How do we be ready to give a reason for our hope? Well, we have, we have to cease from sin, do the will of God, but we have to be willing to lay down our lives. Peter is a follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple is, right? A follower of Jesus. Somebody who has chosen to walk in the same way that Jesus has walked. And Peter is there in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Peter understands the stakes, if you will. Remember I said to you that Peter had a different understanding maybe than we do about how much time we have left because God had told him specifically, hey, you've only got so much time, then your death is going to look this way. But we also know that we're going to die. And Jesus says, you can handle this one of two ways. 
You can arm yourself with my way of thinking. You can choose to suffer in the flesh while you're here, no longer, no longer living for the things of this world, but living for the will of God. Or, or you can try and make your life here. You can try to make uh, as good as possible this life for this time. Paul says in Ephesians, listen, the days are evil. If you, if you try in this life to do what this life allows, you'll end up with nothing. But if you lose your life for the sake of Christ, you'll find it. And that seems like an impossible contradiction, but it's not. It's not. We are going to suffer in this life, right? That's something that's going to happen. Any of you who have been alive more than five minutes know that you're going to suffer in this life. It's going to happen. So Jesus is offering us a way for our suffering to be redeemed. He's offering us an opportunity to live not as we would choose to live, which is for our passion and for whatever feels good, but to live for him because he has conquered sin and death because he is king of kings and lord of lords. He says, if you live this way, I'll redeem your suffering. All of that pain, all of that awfulness, it can be redeemed. The days are evil. I recognize that. I want you to know that. And I want you to see that what you think and what you do has an impact on your life and the lives of those around you. But you're going to have to be willing to give me your life in order for that to work. I need to be Lord, Jesus says. So make him Lord of your life. Understand this connection. Understand that when you think certain things, your actions, your actions are going to follow. And when you act in certain ways, your thoughts are going to follow. Don't expect that you can be like the average American, the average American who watches television for three hours a day and doesn't read their Bible, Right? Don't expect that those actions are going to add up to thoughts about God. If you watch any sort of news program for any length of time, you will begin to feel anxiety about the world. Right? Every day for like four or five years, I would drive into work. I had about a 15-minute commute, uh, commute my last job, and I would just listen to the news. Right? That's all I did. I just listened to the news. It wasn't commentary even. It was just the reading of the news. It coincided with my drive-in, and my anxiety went up, 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 up like this all the time. And then something happened. Uh, battery died in my truck. Fuse blew. Radio didn't work. I didn't bother to get it fixed. And there was no radio. There was no news to listen to. And I had to fill the space somehow, right? So I thought, well, let's try prayer. There was a significant impact on my thinking when I spent the time praying I didn't close my eyes. I was still driving. <laughs> but I did spend the time praying, and I do spend the time praying. It's become a habit. And a habit is not the same as salvation. Don't hear me say, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that spiritual disciplines and habits are going to save you. But it did impact my thinking. When I spent that time praying, instead of listening to the news, it made a difference in the way that I understood my relationship with God. I was able to think his thoughts more readily because I spent time talking to him. So submit your mind and body to him. Resist that temptation to ignore the connection. I said earlier that there are popular duplicities. There are popular ways in which you can be a hypocrite in our world. You guys know what they are, right? You know how you can get away with being uh, double-minded, how you can get away in our world with saying one thing and doing another. Resist the temptation to do those things. Instead, Offer your body to Christ. Offer your life to Christ. Act in the way that you say you believe. 
trust the Lord to lead and guide you. He promises to give eunuchs, people, men, right, who cannot physically produce children, he promises to give them an inheritance better than children. And the same is true for all of you. It doesn't matter what it is you think you can accomplish, God can give you more than you think you can accomplish if you make him Lord of your life. So the practical outworking of how do I love my enemy, it's daily. It's daily. Not talking to the world, but talking to God. When your enemy comes at you, when your enemy comes at you with weapons hot and they're ready to destroy you, instead of saying, God, I have to defeat them in order to survive, you say, no, Jesus, you have already won this victory. Whatever happens to me, you have already won. And I know that you saved me while I was dead in my sins and trespasses, and I know that you can save the person on the other side of that gun. It doesn't feel It doesn't feel like that ought to be possible. We're talking about the God who made the universe. So do you know better? Did you make the stars? Did you order them? Did you call them by name? He did. He knows. So 1 Peter 4, 7, we're ending here because Peter ends here. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Choose the chance to talk to God. Peter comes to this twice in this space of one, two chapters, right? 1 Peter 3, 7 and 1 Peter 4, 7. He says there are actions that we can engage in that affect the way we talk to God. And he says, listen, if, you have a, uh, if you're a husband and you have a wife and you are not treating her well, that impacts your ability to talk to God. Brooks was very clear. He was very direct in his confession that his behavior toward his wife in the past was making his prayer life ineffectual because he was not loving her the way Christ loves his church. And husbands, that is true of you. And wives, that is true of you. If you are not loving your spouse the way that God loves us, it is hurting your ability to talk to God. And then likewise, if you are not sober-minded, if you are not self-controlled, it is impacting your ability to talk to God. He wants to talk to you. He sent his son Jesus to walk on the earth to be a human, to take on flesh, so that we could talk to him, so that we could have interaction face-to-face with God. You guys have probably heard the Old Testament stories about Israel approaching the mountain and God is there. He appears in his glory and there's smoke and there's fire and they're like, leave us alone, God. We can't handle that. We would rather have a golden calf that we know is wrong, but we would rather have that than than this, the smoke and this fire. And so God says, you got it. Here's the man, Jesus. You can talk to God. You can see the way that he lived his life. You can follow him. So as Brooks ended last week, I want to end this week. We need Jesus to do this. We cannot do this by ourselves. You are going to take... You are going to take the offer every time to run after the flood of debauchery, even if it doesn't come in a card. Right? You're going to take that offer every time if, if you are choosing to think like you want to think. But if you want to cease from sin, arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking. Give your body up for him. Give your life up for him. Be willing to suffer as he suffered. And understand that you will then be able to think God's thoughts. Talk to God understand the way that he wants you to see the world. But it will require you to give up your life. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that as we sang this morning that there is victory in Jesus. Because this is a hard word if there is no victory in Jesus. Lord, if this is something that we have to do ourselves, it's impossible. 
but we don't have to do this ourselves. Lord Jesus, you have given us everything in you. All we have to do is follow your example and trust in you. Lord, if we repent of our sins and we follow after you, you give us your kingdom. You make us co-heirs with you in Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this gift. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going before us and showing us the way. Lord, help us to choose to talk to you today, not talk to the world. Lord, help us to stop seeking after what the word, what the world would say to us and help us instead to seek after what you would say to us. Lord, make your word clear to us. It's hard sometimes to read your word. And yet you can give us so much grace and peace and comfort and calm just by knowing what you've said. Lord, I pray that we would choose the chance to talk to you today. Ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, as we've said the last many weeks, we don't want to just offer you the chance to talk to God in this way. Corporately, we want you to be able to talk to God here personally. So if you would like prayer this morning, we invite you to come forward for prayer. Um, and if not, we encourage you to pray with each other as you go out from this place. If you can't stand up, I'm going to send you out the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, bless these people as they go out from this place, that they might hear your word, that they might do your word, that they might think your thoughts after you think them, and that they might always be growing closer to you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Have a good week. Go in grace.